Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, talking to you from Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist, Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. Okay, so uh, the second segment of the show will be our final installment of the life cycle economic series as we've called it we've already done conception education midlife crisis and now we are at inheritance so uh stick around for that but first as always we're going to do something from the news and so the news data point for this week is 1.1 trillion that's the drop in the value of the cryptocurrency market since it hit its peak of three trillion dollars in November. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have experienced massive price drops over the past week. This has sparked some concern over the state and future of the digital assets. Bitcoin, the best-known cryptocurrency, is reeling from a two-month freefall. Last week, the value of each coin dropped to $33,000, down more than 50% from its November peak. But these declines come across the board. Ethereum declined, So did XRP, Solana, Cardano, I don't know, a bunch of other currencies you probably haven't heard of. But also Facebook, or Meta, as it now prefers to be called, decided to shut down its own crypto venture called DM, which it actually never officially launched. On Monday this week, the company announced it's selling off its intellectual property in the project for $182 million. So clearly, if you had money tied up in cryptocurrency, this drop of $1.1 trillion is a very big deal. And that seems to be what most of the news reports are focused on. But frankly, I think it's the flip side of that number that's just as jarring. The $1.9 trillion that this crypto market is still worth. Crypto is clearly a major part of our economy. And I'll admit, I'd be hard pressed to say exactly why. So that's where you come in, Adam. Let's start by trying to present the argument for cryptocurrency in its own terms. What is the case that defenders of crypto make exactly? What was the original argument for why cryptocurrencies could be a useful innovation? In what ways is it claimed to be an improvement on money as we know it? Yeah, so to answer this question, I went back to the original blog post from the fall of 2008, in which the legendary, mysterious founding figure of Bitcoin, this Satoshi Nakamoto, explain the Bitcoin concept. I'm going to say they said the following, because we really just don't know whether it's a man, a woman, a whole collective of people. So Satoshi Nakamoto pronounced as follows, the root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central bank is full of breaches of that trust. Banks must be trusted to hold our money and transfer it electronically, but they lend it out in waves of credit bubbles with barely a fraction in reserves. We have to trust them with our privacy, trust them not to let identity thieves drain our accounts. 
their massive overhead costs make micropayments impossible. So that's the kind of idea, right, that building this trust requires a huge institutional overhead, and that means that electronic payments are inefficient. And so we need a system which minimizes the cost um, of building trust, and that will enable a more efficient web-based commerce develop. It's kind of as prosaic as that. Hmm. And then in the in the first Bitcoin block uh, that was generated on the 9th of January 2009, there's this tantalizing hint of another motives, because embedded in the so-called coin-based transaction of this block, this mythical first issuance of Bitcoin, uh, Nakamoto issued 50 Bitcoins to themselves. They also included a reference of all things to the Times of London of the 3rd of January 2009. And the quote is, Chancellor, that's Treasury Secretary in the UK, on brink of second bailout for banks. So this little chunk of text is encoded into the founding Bitcoin block. It's a bit like terrorists forcing a hostage to hold up a newspaper, you know, the times of all newspapers, sort of stating, you know, that they're still alive or only just alive as the bailouts go in. So the the idea is to kind of create a system that's more efficient, less trust-based. And it's tied also to this idea right from the very beginning that these 50 Bitcoins are just the first increment towards an arbitrary final total of 21 million Bitcoins. No one really knows why it was set like that. Nakamoto just decided it should be 21 million. And they should, the pace at which those should be created, the difficulty of creating them should double every four years. So it's reckoned that by 2028, 93% of all Bitcoins that will ever be minted will have been mined. Whether anyone will want them for anything at that point is a different matter. But one thing you don't have to worry about is some sort of giant inflation of Bitcoins. There's certainly never going to be more than 21 million. So that's the idea, right? You make something that's more trustworthy, less unreliable than regular money, both for little online transactions and also, in a sense, disempowering the state and its capacity to create more money if it feel it sees fit. So, so just so I understand correctly, the, the trust is coming from, on one hand, there's some cryptographic code that everyone can rely on to say who has the money. And, and then also the fact that there's some algorithm that determines how the money gets made and who gets it to start with. I mean, like there's no government deciding sort of how much money gets made. Is that where the trust comes in? I mean, I even found it hard to understand how, why this is more trustworthy or, or supposedly more trustworthy. Well, there's a mechanism, these, these so-called hash functions, which generate the encoding. And those are just black boxed. And... Absolutely. Then the trust comes from the fact that Bitcoins produce records. This is the famous blockchain concept, produce records, if you like, complete encoded encrypted records of their ownership. And you can't manipulate that. What you critically can't do is twice spend the same Bitcoin, because to do so, you would need to change the entire branching tree of previous transactions. And once you get beyond five or six links in the chain of Bitcoin transactions, that becomes prohibitively expensive from Mm. the point of view of computing power. And so any gain that you would make from fraudulently duplicating a chain of ownership that would allow you to spend the Bitcoin twice would be vastly outweighed by the cost of actually creating this fraudulent double transaction. And so that's built in. The whole system is built on a profound mistrust, not just of governments, but of other people. If you look at the the founding 
document of Bitcoin. It's literally a kind of a model of a almost Hobbesian arms race between computers trying to defraud each other. And the question is, how do you build a coalition so large and so strong that no defrauding computer could over, ever overwhelm the computing power of those committed to the transparency of the actual blockchain? Okay, so I think I can understand how that makes sense on its own terms, maybe why this could be more efficient in some ways. But in what ways does crypto not work like money? I mean, in what ways does it fail at being a currency? Well, I mean, what is money for? You've got to ask yourself. And I mean, and the standard sort of functional answer is it's at least one of three things. So it's a unit of account, a store of value or a means of payment. So you can ask, you know, does crypto serve as a unit of account? Well, yes, it does for some people. Arguably, that's in fact its most successful function. The problem, of course, as we know today, and we're confronted with this stark collapse in the value of Bitcoin, is that for it to be a useful unit of value, let alone a good store of value, it needs to actually be stable in value. And it isn't. It actually fluctuates gigantically. And part of the time, of course, that makes people feel fabulously good because the value of Bitcoin is going up, so the value of their holdings goes up. But then when it crashes right now, of course, it has the reverse effect. And, and that instability interacts not just with its function as a unit of account and as a store of value, but also as a means of payment. Because if you, you, know, if you spend Bitcoin buying you know, the famous cup of coffee or whatever at Starbucks, when it's on an upswing, by the afternoon, your cup of coffee costs vastly more than it did in the morning. It's an incredibly unwise thing to do. So in a sense, the one thing that Bitcoin and other crypto, what they've really become is a vehicle for large-scale, leveraged, risk-loving speculation without meaningful fundamentals. So as you were describing, it doesn't seem like crypto is useful in terms of making payments, but is crypto maybe an innovation in terms of money laundering or, or other criminal activity? I mean, we're talking about an entire system that is sort of opaque from, from outsiders uh, and other governments. Yeah, this association with like Bitcoin and rogue finance is real. I mean, I think from 2011 onwards, Bitcoin was known to have been the currency of choice for drug dealers on the infamous Stark Web, you know, the Silk Road website where all sorts of horrible stuff was being exchanged. And you can see why, right? But um, on the other hand, you know, if, if I was making payments to a Colombian drug lord like now in Bitcoin, I'd be worried about whether they'd be coming to ask for a little extra mm. you know, on the payment. I mean, we think, I think that the criminal use of Bitcoin probably peaked at about $20 billion worth of transactions in 2019. It was probably half that in 2020. We can track, as it were, the use of Bitcoin um, payments from what we know to be criminally associated internet addresses. I mean, but it's important to put that in perspective. I mean, it's it's important from the point of view of crypto in the sense that one lot of things that people may actually be buying with crypto is not cappuccinos or real estate, but things that you really don't want to buy with legal currency. In other words, this may actually be one area, famously ransomware, for instance, extracts Bitcoin payments because they're so hard to trace. So this may actually, in terms of the real expenditure of crypto, be a rather more important area. In terms of overall, what you know, the commonly quoted crypto turnover numbers, those are actually just people buying the currency back and forth, different types of crypto and changing into fiat. They totally dwarf that 10 billion number. And it's also, of course, worth saying that the UN's figures for global crime and money laundering totally dwarf it too. I mean, the UN thinks that 2 to 5% of global GDP is money laundered. So that would be two to five trillion dollars globally. So that would be several orders of magnitude larger than anything we happen in, we think is happening in Bitcoin. Okay, so so let's say we agree that Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies of its ilk are in practice nothing more than speculative assets or 
tools for, for money laundering. I mean, what about digital currencies as just a more cooperative concept, not trying to sort of create a, a kind of utopian alternative financial system, but rather having a role to play in our existing system of finance? I mean, in theory, could cryptocurrencies fulfill some legitimate need that's otherwise going unfilled in our financial system? I mean, is this where this term I've seen stable coins, like Facebook's aborted DM project? Um, is, is that where they come in? I think so. I mean, stable coins are a very big deal, uh, have emerged in the last year as such. I mean, the overall circulating supply is, is you know, topped 130 billion as of the end of 2021. And um, they've been attracting a lot of attention from regulators, far more than Bitcoin, because the fundamental difference is that Bitcoin is essentially just a speculative asset. And in the same way as the booming and busting of a bubble like that can shape balance sheets and cause economic damage, it doesn't ripple through the systemic uh, interstices, the, the plumbing of the financial system, because it's just basically like speculating in houses or, you know, fancy cars or wine or anything like that, right? Whereas stable coins, by their stability, by anchoring the value of the coin to more conventional financial assets, and what they do is to say, right, we're going to issue this number of stable coin, and we're going to back them fractionally by 40 or 50 or 60%. Some even claim 100% backing in something else, something more conventional, US treasuries, private debt, dollars, for heaven's sake. And the implication of that is that they are actually just, in all but name, banks. That's exactly what banks do, right? So they hold fractional reserves. And this is a somewhat ironic development, you know, that the technology that started out as being a critique of banking in that sense has, in one of its more dynamic forms in the current moment, emerged as a reinvention of banking. But one could very easily see that emerging as a, an extension of the, the existing financial system. What is a potential application there that, that isn't already being fulfilled? Because it's, it is hard for me to imagine. And if it's backed by money, it sounds like just like normal money. So what is the added value? The added value would be the speed of transaction and the reliability and the, the, the ability not to move through intermediaries. And in terms of, say, uh, very rapid international transfers, the chains of intermediaries that are involved, even today, even even with, you know, you'd think modern global finance are actually long and extended and slow. And if you can develop a technology that enables you to make large-scale international transactions um, in a matter of minutes rather than two or three days, then this is a winner. Got it. I mean, it does yeah, seem like all the useful applications of cryptocurrencies require basically a connection to the existing Western financial system. I mean, if only just to cash out the crypto into into a, a, a more stable currency. Does that mean, though, Adam, it's in the power of financial regulators in the US and other Western countries to just put an end to cryptocurrencies anytime they want? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you mentioned the Facebook's experiment with what was called Libra first in 2019 and then became DM in 2020 as Facebook itself converted itself into Meta. You know, that was perceived right from the very beginning as a systemic threat of a very large scale because Facebook made no secret of its intention to build a global coalition of very, very powerful credit card companies, PayPal, the entire global payment system was going to be organized under this. And the response from regulators, notably in the US, but also in Europe was very off-putting. And that's what's buried it. None of the big corporate players want to be associated with it. It also, of course, had to do with the turn of global attitudes against big tech and social media. But um, 
that's absolutely what's in the background there. And it's a clear indication of the fact that this is a massively political issue that will have to be negotiated in these terms. And one of the defensive claims made on behalf of the DM project by you know, the dis- disappointed folks who were associated with it and have to come to terms with its failure now is that it helped to drive the development of central bank digital currencies, which are one of the versions of digital currency which probably have most legs and are quite likely to be developed on a large scale in the coming decade. Okay, we will leave it there. Uh, When we come back, we'll be talking about inheritance. Let's hope for the sake of your kids that the inheritance does not come in the form of cryptocurrencies, uh, given all that we just discussed. But uh, we will be right back. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, Maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. The next data point is $36 trillion. That is the amount of money that's set in the United States to be transferred from one generation to another over the next 30 years as baby boomers pass away. Over the next several decades, it is estimated that $30 trillion will move from baby boomers' bank accounts into the coffers of future generations. At the end of this year's first quarter, Americans aged 70 and above had a net worth of nearly $35 trillion. That brings us to the last stage of our series on life cycle economics. We've covered conception, education, midlife crisis, 
And now we're at the end. In biological terms, I guess you'd refer to the end of the life cycle as death. In economic terms, it seemed natural for us to cover it in the form of inheritance. Clearly, there's a lot of economic detritus that we all leave behind. Again, that's $36 trillion in the next 30 years that's set to be inherited, so we thought we'd take a closer look. Maybe we could start with some historical context, Adam. How has inheritance changed over time? I mean, I'm guessing for most of history, there was comparatively less to inherit from one generation to the next. Was the process also less regulated, less bureaucratized, I'm guessing? Or was it even more so, I guess, at the upper end? I think it's at the upper end that it matters, right? Because, I mean, back through history at the top, there's always been enough to inherit to make quite a fuss about it. And we know this because both the Greeks and the Romans left wills, um, like almost modern style wills where people declare themselves to be in sound mind and there are witnesses and signatures, the whole works. Really? Um, And out of that deep tradition in in Western Civ, like very different law codes, very important law codes developed, like primogenitor, for instance, the inheritance of the first son, which dominates the English landed uh, aristocracy and gentry. If you read the, you know, the novels of Jane Austen, you'll see this logic in operation. The trust was invented as a way in the late 1700s, early 1800s, as a way of getting around primogenitor and providing for younger sons and daughters. I mean, by the time of Charles Dickens in you know, a novel like Bleak House, you have the figure of Mr. Tulkinghorn, who is surrounded by a mysterious halo of family confidences. And he is the silent depository of knowledge about the British aristocracy. And that kind of knowledge, that inside knowledge really comes into its own when we get into the age of modern taxation, because wealth taxes, inheritance tax begin to be discussed very actively in the 19th century. The US inheritance tax comes into effect in 1916. And from that moment on, really, it becomes a very big deal. Um, For a while, in the age of the Great Compression in the 40s, 50s, 60s, we saw a reduction in inequality of wealth and income in the the US. But then from the 70s onwards, across the Anglosphere, Britain, the United States, you see the effort to push back the hurdle so as to enable wealth accumulation to extend. So the allowance for uh, inheritance, at which point tax uh, cuts in in the US, rises from a million dollars in 2003 to $5 million in 2017, and then under Donald Trump to as much as $12 million. So altogether, there's a, there's a struggle going on here that really does stretch back over centuries. But as you started by saying, I mean, the amounts of money that look as now they're going to churn through the system of inheritance in the coming decades are epic. And they do indeed put anything we've seen before in the shade. They are the result of centuries of, of global growth and global accumulation. So, Adam, is inheritance still a minority pursuit? I mean, what percentage of Americans will be inheriting significant wealth from their parents? Well, uh, this is really complicated to do, actually. The statistics on this are are quite difficult to construct. There's a uh, Professor Wolf at NYU has done the most elaborate estimations, and he thinks that over the period of the modern Americans' lifetime, they could probably, about 30% of them can expect to inherit something which sounds about right when you consider that only half of Americans really have any net worth. It's only the top 50% of households that have any net worth at all. So 30% inheriting sounds about right. Um, It's also true that the top 1% of households are going to inherit 35% of of all inheritance, which again just matches the 
pattern of the wealth distribution, which is so massively skewed, right? Um, unsurprisingly, however, overall, the effect of inheritance is to flatten the wealth distribution, at least, at least at the moment that the distribution happens, right? Because what you're doing is taking highly concentrated estates and splitting them up amongst the recipients, all of whom, generally speaking, have lower levels of wealth than the people they inherit from. And one of the slightly counterintuitive effects here is that the impact of that lower down the social scale so lower down the 30 to 40% of people who do inherit is more dramatic than it is higher up. So even though they inherit less, given that the net worth, for instance, of a median white millennial in the US right now is $88,000. So if they only inherit $50,000, which by the standards of the big inheritance is tiny, it hugely increases their net worth. So there is a strange logic by which inheritance, you might think of it as an endless flywheel on wealth inequality. And that is its overall effect. But within the group of 30% who are receiving these, it generally speaking tends to moderate the inequality, which is running in their cases largely across generations between the older and the younger folks in middle class and upper middle class families. Generally speaking, however, what's absolutely clear is that the sooner you get the money, the better. So the more powerful impact hmm. really of inheritance is not so much at the moment of death, by which point, you know, most people when their parents die are in their 40s or 50s and are already well embarked on their more or less successful careers. What really makes a difference is the 10,000, 20,000 towards the deposit for your first apartment or the funding for the law degree that catapults you into the top levels of the income hierarchy. That's, as it were, where family transfers, which are very significant, and about half of people in their 20s expect to get some sort of financial support from their families. Prior to inheritance, that makes the most difference. Okay, so this is you know, a somewhat abstract question, but to the extent that capitalism has a moral logic doesn't it run contrary to the logic of inheritance uh that, that we're talking about i mean if capitalism is all about getting rewarded for one's own entrepreneurship for risk taking i mean isn't that undermined by some people knowing that they're starting so far ahead I mean, I would say it's one of capitalism's defining characteristics that it is contradictory and uh, its moral logic, hmm. such as it is, is certainly so, right? So I think you're absolutely right. I think there are two moral logics at work here, right? One is the performance ethic that people should be rewarded, you know, at least notionally, this is what we like to tell ourselves according to the merits and productivity and risk taking and so on. And the other one is no less moralistic, I think, and it's the acquisitive, each their own, you know, uh, logic of property. And, and those two don't go terribly well together. And that goes all the way down. And, and crucially, you know, as we were talking about when we were talking about education, I mean, striving middle class families are determined to secure a good starting point for their kids in what they would describe as a meritocratic rat race. But is one which, from the point of view of those kids, is, of course, fueled by the lavish spending of their slightly better off parents on their education. Right. So it's this weird split consciousness of simultaneously believing and, and quite sincerely being committed to meritocracy and indeed living it as an earnest discipline. And on the other hand, of course, necessarily benefiting from the kind of resources that a family that's better off can supply. I mean, in the end, I think it sort of squares into some rather cynical kind of 
you know, commitment to a rather brutal Darwinian race in which, you know, yeah, sure, the winners win and that's important and they do so on merit and you don't really ask too many questions about where their merit comes from or what gives them that position. And in the end, you know, those who prosper then do end up building up considerable assets, which then they also quite, you know, meretriciously and moralistically say need to be defended against any possible intrusion. So I think that is the the contradictory set of logics which upper middle class society lives. It is a problem that afflicts only, as we're saying, a small minority of the population with any degree of seriousness. Well, I mean, I guess you could have theoretically a 100% estate tax, and that would be a kind of morally rigorous, uh, but but uh, I guess that wouldn't fly, I guess, in, a, in an election. Um, but, uh, or maybe it would, who knows? And it would induce some really interesting behavior in like elderly people, right? Because they would, they would need to spend everything. <laughs> it would be, you know, it, yeah. it would induce a, I... a potlatch of consumption, one would imagine, which would be quite remarkable to see. I'm sensing a platform here, so maybe maybe someone can take this up. But to move on, though, I mean, how thoroughly right now has, I don't know, to put it crudely, how, how thoroughly has death become swallowed by the capitalist marketplace? I mean, how big are the markets that exist now to, that, are, that just cater to organizing one's estate? Yeah, it's a fascinating question, and it's another one of those which is not quite as easy as you might hope to get a handle on. I mean, we can, because this is, you know, the sort of thing which folks don't necessarily want to advertise. Um but I mean, the industry that is engaged in wealth management estimates that worldwide there are just short of 300,000 individuals with a net worth of 30 million in investable capital. Of those, about 100,000 live in the United States. In fact, one in every 720 citizens of San Jose, the center of the tech boom, belongs in this group, has a net worth of over 30 million. And they have elaborate networks of wealth managers to take care of that, to protect it from tax now and to ensure that it passes to whoever they want to pass it to in a a way which they can control. I mean, the most radical move you can make as an American and the most effective in some ways is to simply renounce your citizenship in the US, because as long as you remain a citizen, of course, you're liable for tax. And about 5,000 people do that a year. And one imagines they're not doing it for idealistic reasons. The industry which caters to this group... um, is increasingly formalized. So, you know, the sort of Dickensian figures go back to the 19th century, but the modern wealth management, global wealth management industry was launched in the early 1990s. It has a confederation, the Society for Trust and Estate Professionals. They issue um, certificates, qualifications. Um, The most important is the uh, CPWA qualification, which is the highest level of tax, estate and retiring planning of which only 400 people hold the full certification or did at least in 2008. There's probably about 6,000 plus advisors at the very highest level worldwide. Uh, Then they work with bespoke family offices. So these are the family offices which manage family assets. They're thought to run about $7.6 trillion worth of assets for the richest families in the world. It's an interesting business because it's it's really bespoke stuff, right? The fees that these firms and these individuals charge are overwhelmingly spent back on the clients. It's kind of like the ultimate expense account lifestyle because you're inside the nitty gritty of extremely wealthy people's lives and their family relationships. It's a bit like somehow being a cross between a psychoanalyst and a butler and an accountant. The salaries, however, are not you know, top Wall Street dollar, they're not the same as being an investment banker at one of the big firms, let alone a hedge fund manager 
um, or you know private equity out in Connecticut or something like that. So it's a it's a big industry. It caters to a lot of money, but it exists in this really the relationship of a service provider, literally, rather than simply a money manager. The net effect, I thought this was in some senses the most interesting thing. It's, it's estimated that in managing assets that add up to about $21 trillion, this entire industry is thought to save its clients about $200 billion in tax a year. Now, that's only 1% of the assets. And I think what that really tells you is that the tax rates on most of these income and wealth flows are just not very high. So, I mean, these people are very determined not to pay them and they invest quite a lot of money in avoiding them. But in fact, really, you don't have to be very canny or break very many laws at all. In fact, you don't need to break any laws to avoid paying what are, in the end, relatively modest tax rates for the vast majority, except the super elite wealthy. But those in this 10, 20, 30 million dollar bracket, they wouldn't really be up for very heavy taxation in any case. So it seems only natural to try to end this series uh, on life cycle economics with thinking about those who try to escape death uh, one way or another. Uh, I mean, so how long is the afterlife of the richest people on the planet? I mean, measured by the persistence of their wealth. I mean, what is the closest that capitalism can bring us to immortality, say? Well, if you look at the business story, it's it's a real cliche, right? So 70% of wealthy families lose their wealth by the second generation, 90% lose it by the third. So if you are the Mars family, the you know the candy confectionery family, they're in the fourth generation, they're doing pretty well. Uh, the Waltons who own Walmart have reckoned to be the richest family in the world with assets over $200 billion. And who would bet against Walmart going into a few more generations before that model expires? But really, I thought this was a little unimaginative of these data. Let's have a look at some of the like really large landowning families in Britain, for instance, where there have been no revolutions, no upheavals, no expropriations. This is where it gets really serious, it seems to me. So the Duke of Athol in Scotland has 145,000 acres. He's the 11th Duke. He currently chooses to live most of his time in South Africa, but he does, in fact, have the only private army in England. <laughs> Or take the Dukes of Westminster. So the Dukes of Westminster, who go, whose company is the Grosvenor Property Company, they got lucky marrying. So Sir Thomas Grosvenor in 1677 married a certain Mary Davies, who had land in the so-called Five Fields area of London. And that land turned out to be Mayfair, Belgravia and Pimlico. So this family, now into the God knows how many generations, literally <laughs> owns almost all of downtown West End London. So they actually owned what used to be the site of the American embassy. And when the American embassy said, could we actually buy this freehold rather than leasing it? The Grosvenor's response, I kid you not, was, okay, in exchange for the 12,000 acres that we lost in Florida after the revolution in 1776, <laughs> we'd be happy to allow you to own your embassy plot in the West End of London. The, Cape, the deal didn't go through. The land that the Grosvenor's owned is now Cape Canaveral, from which NASA launches the, was then launching the space shuttle. And so the embassy ended up moving to South London. But I mean, that's serious longevity. I mean, they literally married into this land in 1677. There wasn't London there at the time. 
It was literally just grazing fields between the city of London, you know, further down the river and Westminster, and have managed it ever since. Um, and that's that's real longevity. Wow. So that, that really goes to show if you play your cards right, then your family's name can live on in perpetuity, even as you live on in, in South Africa or elsewhere with a private army. Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for joining us on this life cycle economics. Uh, we may return to this theme at some points in the future. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks, as always, to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. 
In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.